the fact that Filecoin and all these projects survived was because they had a huge war chest to fund development and attract developers. And look at matters, right? Uh, I tend to, my estimation is that a lot of the really smart developers are very risk averse and they, you know, would you rather go to a project that is very well capitalized and has backing from, you know, well-reputable VCs or would you rather go to a project that doesn't have enough runway? And I think that it's a very clear answer. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for jumping out, coming on the show. We have a very special guest here that a lot of you may know, but may not know directly. And this is Garrett, who's on the team, and he is the brains behind this operation. He puts these incredible notes, uh, leak without Thank like you. with a ton of alpha. And we've been lucky to have Garrett for a while now. Um, and this is the first episode he comes on. So he'll be doing most of the talking here because he's done incredible research on a lot of the hot topics we're going to talk about here. Uh, but without further ado, Garrett, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, taking over Jason slowly. He doesn't know that. But um, that's the goal here. So <laughs> I'm rising up in the ranks. Slowly and then, what is it? Uh, slowly, gradually, and then suddenly. And then suddenly, like yeah. That. yeah. That is the goal. Um but yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I think before we jump in, I want to do a shout out. I'm on the production team over here and we are hiring a new editor. So if you have a portfolio and a resume, shoot it over to my Twitter. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, funny enough, that's actually how I got this job. So I think it was probably eight months back. I heard Santi talking about this producer role and uh, I love the show. It's always top three for me, even before I knew anything about Blockworks as a company and I jumped in. So somehow I got this job from a podcast and now I'm on it. Nice. We've come full circle. So yeah, everyone, this is a great opportunity. We're going to continue to do this through bull and bear markets. Um, and we're really excited. There's a lot of cooking. So uh, if you're, if this is, this is calling you, please apply. Yeah, definitely. Well, Santi, I think we ought to just go ahead and jump into it. There's Let's do it. some big news this week. I want to start with Aptos, which Aptos has been around. I think people have been talking about for a few months, but it really came onto the scene this Monday when they launched their mainnet. Aptos is a, it's a new L1 chain. It's marketing about 160,000 TPS, which is extremely high, and a new level, new high-level programming language called Move. Uh, and that's probably one of the main attributes that people really talk about. And the interesting thing about Aptos, it's coming from the DM team that was over at Facebook. And now you have Aptos and also Sui. So this went to mainnet Monday, but there was a little bit of drama behind it, which I just want to touch on because this was all over Twitter. So initially, a few exchanges said that they were going to list the APT, which is the Aptos token, but there was no economics on it. So it's like, what's the fully diluted value? What's the supply? Um, but the Aptos team did shortly release that after. You just had the little frenzy on Twitter. Um, then there were a few complaints about the token distribution. So the big thing with Aptos, to some degree, it's out of San Francisco, I believe, and it has a big VC backing. I mean, it's backed by... A16Z, Multicoin, Parify, FTX, like very respected firms in the space. Um, and the allocation that they showed on this economics page was 51% of the tokens were allocated to the community, while 32.5% were going to investors. But right now, 51% that was going to the community is actually owned by Aptos. So then you had more people pressing back on this. It was a little bit of a hard launch for that day, at least if you're on crypto Twitter. Uh, but later that night, Aptos actually came out and they announced a 20 million APT token airdrop to users who participated in the test net. So they are going to have an airdrop going on. Um, and the one last thing that people are talking about were with the tokenomics is that everybody that had tokens and the investors are on the team, they were going to be locked, but locked and locked tokens could be staked in the token contract. So those people would get rewards, those inflationary rewards, and would be able to sell those immediately. So that was just some of the drama. People are pushing back on this. I think it's fair to say there's no perfect uh, token drop, airdrop, like economics. We're all we're all just learning here. So it is interesting to watch, though. 
Um, there's a little bit of pushback as well. Like is Aptos centralized? It's just like Solana, but it has 101 validators uh, that are permissioned and you know, it goes on and on. But what I want to talk about is I actually think Aptos has a lot of cool technology behind it. I think the move, the programming language is fascinating. It's supposed to be a lot more uh, developer friendly, et cetera. So Santi, at a high level, I'm just curious what you think about the launch or you know, what you know about the project. Yeah, definitely. And then full disclosure, uh, I was an investor in the round that uh, my former firm, Parify, and a, a bunch of other firms participated in. And I think for me, the <clears throat> the thesis um, when I first connected with Mo and the rest of the team was, you know, this is a team that's been working on, as you mentioned, uh, at Facebook Libra. Um, and unfortunately, that initiative got shelved, you know, put on freeze for a number of reasons. I think most controversially, you know, what it was just too muddled with Facebook and that narrative of Facebook having a lot of control and a lot of, you know, um, information about users and especially in Europe where I'm based, like, I feel like Facebook has, has not been, you know, it's been in the news, not for the right reasons. And so I think the whole Libra movement, I think had a lot of traction. I was very supportive of it. I think it was a lot of interesting things and the team behind it, I think was very credible, super smart. And so you're you're getting for me it was getting that which I wanted to see launch and and fully developed um, and what ended up becoming Aptos. So that was my thesis, and I think perhaps different from other. We had a great episode earlier um, with the Cosmos team, and I asked him, "Hey, how do you guys think about business development? How do you think about winning over, you know, corporations and you know enterprises? And at some point, this asset class is going to grow to a point where you're going to attract those players." And I know, I know, like a lot of people are skeptical because in 2017, a lot of you know public companies were out saying they're they're in crypto and and you know, it's just being a marketing kind of thing. But I think it's credible, and I think the Aptos team has a very strong ecosystem in its short existence. Uh, if you look at a lot of the projects building on Aptos, and I think that speaks to like the initial traction that Libra got. It got a lot of interest from you know folks like PayPal and Uber and a bunch of other companies and. And I'm I'm glad to see that because, you know, I don't think my view is I don't think this is mutually exclusive. I don't think the success of Aptos d- diminishes the success of perhaps other chains. I've always believed in a multi-chain world, and I'm excited to see perhaps more corporations and other businesses kind of launch and and perhaps be more inclined to do that in Aptos than you know Cosmos, for instance. And so I think it's a win for the space. Um, and as a side note, and the last thing I'll say is there was an interesting tweet from Anatoly, the founder of Solana, saying, "Hey, congrats, guys! You know, this is just a start." And you know, I don't. I think he meant that in you know, in good faith. And it's good to see that kind of uh, ethos in the community. Yep. Yeah, I 100 percent agree with that. I, th- I want to say that Libra launched, or they or they announced it in 2019, which I think is pretty interesting because that was during the bear market. Right. And uh, that yep. really was a pretty big movement for crypto because I, mean, I think when Facebook got behind that, you had a lot of talent that probably thought about coming to the space that said, like, look, there's this giant corporation behind it. Let's do it. And now you see Facebook getting or yeah, Facebook getting behind or Meta. That's the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meta now getting behind the metaverse. And you have a lot of pushback from there, too. But that's another company coming in, same company saying, like, look, we think this might be the future. And I think that'll attract a lot of talent. So I think that is really big. Um, you kind of yep. agree with that. Absolutely. Look. You, we can criticize Lib- uh, Meta, Facebook, all you want, but they've done one thing very right, which is they've been early to certain trends. If you look at all their acquisitions, they acquired Instagram for $1 billion. That ended up being um, a huge success. Amazing. They acquired WhatsApp, which is second to like WeChat, like the most pervasive like chat in, 
in the world. And so huge win for them. They've acquired Oculus, obviously, around this VR play, which has been slower to, like, I don't think we've, you know, the verdict is out there yet. They're spending a lot of resources on on the metaverse. And so I think that that's very encouraging for validation of the space, uh, of the metaverse, of AR, AI, which we'll talk about later. But I, I think generally, like, these are buzzwords, which I hate, but I do think that Facebook has been early historically on predicting trends and and where you, users are going to really spend a lot of their time on. And so, um, yeah, it's good to see Aptos as, you know, a team that branched off of that and the brains behind it, I think, uh, are now continuing to build in the space, which is, is, a, is a very positive development. Yeah, 100% agree. So just on Aptos, I want to take control here and give yes. the bull and bear case from my high-level perspective. And I talk with the Blockworks research team they're guys you got to follow, extremely smart. And I've run this by some of them. They haven't all proved, so I'm no professional here. But okay, my bull case for Aptos is the move programming language, which essentially is going to have lower barriers to entry for new devs, is at least what I hear. I'm not a, a developer myself, but it's a more simple syntax. And the big point to me is Solidity EVM is in control right now. It's really the shelling point for developers in the Web3 community. But you do have other things like Rust, which um, I believe that's Solana and a few other ecosystems than Go, which you have in Cosmos. But if you really want to get crypto to be a big industry, we need Web2 devs to come over. And for them to come over, you probably need languages that are more familiar to them. And Move is potentially that. And from what I've heard also, it could have better tooling. Like if you don't have tooling for a programming language, I know it's pretty much useless because DevOps and tooling is huge. Um, and you also want it to be safe. So like you hear about reentrancy, which... Um, and the EVM and Solidity. And I think these new languages like Rust and Move are trying to get around that. Now, it'll be curious to see whether people are just willing to pick up Solidity or if this is going to slowly be adopted over time. And if it is, who knows? Like You're going to have application-specific change. You're going to have roll-ups. Um, and these languages could also be implemented there. And I think that's one thing. You get a lot of hate on Aptos from some of the Ethereum and other communities, but like crypto is all about testing, innovation, pushing the limits. So if anything, I think you should kind of just applause that. Um, also, strong talent team from Diem. We just talked about that with Facebook. Um, Silicon Valley Pool. So this is kind of based out of San Francisco. They have a lot of big VC investors. And I think that's a big deal. Not only through, you were talking about business development earlier. It's about getting new talent. It's about partnerships. Like if we want to move eventually SaaS products on chain, having that pool and having those relationships, I think is a really big deal. We see that with Polygon. Polygon does have great tech and they're continuing to come out with new tech, but their biggest thing is business development. Uh, and the last one I have here is just high throughput use cases, which you do hear from Solana. And maybe this is a little bit more centralized, or at least now. Um, but there's this quote from Michelle that, that came on the podcast. She works at uh, Sequoia just a few weeks ago. And I love it. It's, people have a lust for unfettered decentralization. And it's saying in not every case do you need that. And I, and I think that's part of the bull case here is it's high throughput. Um, you can have composability. Now, I think that's a pretty good selling point. But let's just get to a quick bear case. So it is relatively currently centralized, from what I can tell. Um, there's 101 permission validators. Uh, you have APT, which is the token. Now, if this is deemed to be rather centralized, does that make it a security? Like, what's the question there? Um, why not build on a database if this is something that is controlled by a few parties that could essentially say stop the chain? Now, you have these questions everywhere in crypto. This is not particular to Aptos. You do have a spectrum. Um, one thing is VC funds. Like, you know, when I'm thinking about this, I said, why, why continue to invest in L1 tokens or really just these projects in general for the bear market? And I think one thing that's good to remember is these VCs raised a ton of funds. 
a ton of capital over the last year, several months. Uh, I think it was A16Z just came out with a, this probably six months ago, $4.5 billion crypto fund. So the amount of money they have to deploy is insane. And I think at one point people could argue that leads to bubbles and projects that shouldn't be funded, get funded. But out of that, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10% are going to actually come out on the other side. Um, and the last thing that I would say as a bear case is L1s and settlement layers. And I think it's really confusing because now we have L1s, L2s, L3s, application specific chains, like it doesn't stop. But L1s and settlement layers are, are really about the community. Uh, there's basically a cult. We see that with Bitcoin. We see that with Ethereum. We see that with other ecosystems. Will that continue to be a thing? I'm not really sure. It's really definitely a niche you know, community right now. We're less than a trillion dollars. So we're less than, than Facebook, but that's a really big deal. So I guess the question is, is that community going to matter? And can these different chains like Aptos that are relatively new build up these communities um, that others have? And I'm, I'm just curious, do you, do you have any thoughts? I know I just threw a lot mm -hmm. out there, but something that sticks out to you, Santi. I think those are great points. Um, look, I'm, I obviously, I'm an investor, so I'm, I'm bullish on the project and, you know, uh, but I do think that your arguments and, and the criticisms around kind of the launch and the degree of centralization and uh, are, are fair. Um, I, I guess one one th one observation that I'll have is, and I and I and I was critical about this like in in the past cycle, which is why do projects like you remember like Filecoin, Definity, yeah, like they raised like massive billion dollar rounds, right? I think it was like close to a billion or like hundreds of millions of, of mm -hmm. dollars. I think. Um, and you fast forward to like now and you say, gosh, like, you know, in many ways, like the fact that Filecoin and all these projects survived was because they had a huge war chest to fund development and attract developers. And look, it matters, right? Uh, I tend to, my estimation is that a lot of the really smart developers are very risk averse and they, you know, would you rather go to a project that is very well capitalized and has backing from you know, well-reputable VCs, or would you rather go to a project that doesn't have enough runway? And I think that it's a very clear answer, right? Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, in many ways, every, your question around why do we need another L1, I tend to think that we're very early still. Um, so the exploration in this L1 design space, I think is still positive. Now, a lot of critic, a lot of people might be critical of that and say, "Gosh, why don't we just focus all our resources on L2s?" Because Ethereum's already one mindshare developer mindshare. Just focus on L2s. And I just think that, like to your point, the developer ecosystem is is large and growing, but it's not like mutually exclusive. It's not detracting. I think Solana really showed us that with you know Rust programming language, it is attractive. And I was talking to the Solana um, kind of community and BD team there. Shout out to Ben and, and other folks doing good work. They're like a lot of the developers are not coming over from Ethereum. It's just new developers. And I think that's positive for the space. If you if you have a really easy to understand and program programming language, then um, you know, who knows? I think Aptos is gonna ex continue to expand the developer community here. Um, and I think that's positive. Um, so those are kind of my thoughts. Um, I think it's it's a well-capitalized project. I think you're gonna need a lot of resources to attract projects and developers to come and build on your chain. I think they're already early indications are doing a really good job there, but it's, it's going to require more capital and incentives, right? Um, around the centralization point, <clears throat> look, I mean, I think there's criticisms on any chain, right? There's, I ascribe to what Michelle said, there's no kind of perfect, like end state of decentralization. I think we're going to have more regulatory clarity in the next six, 12 months. If something is a security or whatever this new paradigm is of Web3 security, whatever that new term is, I think it's just going to require 
a very clear set of information disclosures that any public company does. And I think a lot of these companies would be surprised, but I think they're already there. Um, a lot of this stuff is programmed on chain. Like you look at the smart contract, you can read the number of tokens, the inflation schedule, a lot of these things, right? You know, the wallets of certain, the team. And I think those are the things that build to market integrity, which is very important for, from a regulatory standpoint and consumer protection as well. Uh, we'll talk about later in the episode about FTX and and Sam's view on regulation, which I think is important of of perhaps exchanges being the gatekeepers of doing the due diligence, doing whenever you're going to list, for instance, AP, APT, well, you, the team needs to produce and furnish all this information, right? And so kind of in many ways, the exchanges become the Edgar SEC of this industry. Uh, but I'll, I'll stop there because I'm going to touch that later. So anyways, that's my ramble. Yeah, no, not a ramble. Those are great points, Sonny. I And I do agree that this is what I liked about Solana. And this is also what I like about Move is when you get those developers in the ecosystem that it's a new language, new VM, they're more likely to stick around because you're not just having someone jump between the EVM Solidity chain. So I think that's so huge. And there's this quote from this Invest Like the Best podcast where it's when I'm, when I'm looking at Solana and I'm looking at um, Aptos and then Ethereum, or you're comparing it to something like Avalanche and all a fan of all those projects, but it's like, the guy said, I don't want to be a 10 times better Apple. So like comparing Apple to Apple, I want to be like a banana and make you it's the whole point of this is not a comparison, a choice. And I think that's a big deal from an investment perspective. And also when you're attracting talent over. So it's not just comparing like, look, this spec is slightly better than that one. We already know how hard that is when you just select a laptop. Like it took me like an hour to even think between the two Macs. Um, so I, I do really like this thing where it's it's not a comparison. It's a choice. Um, yeah. Anyways, yeah, I think we can move on from that. And you, you yeah. touched on Sam Bankman-Fried, who has been involved uh, with policy, with regulation a lot lately. I think he's probably putting 50% plus of his time in there. I, I mean... Man's crazy. I think he, he probably works 24 hours in a day. SBF used to be the white knight of the industry, right? When you had these different C5 firms that were falling, falling over and he came in and kind of saved the day. Now, the question is, like, did he do that for the industry? Did he do it for profit? At the end of the day, I don't think it really matters. But I want to talk about a few of the main points that came out of this document that he posted, which I'll include in the show notes. And one of them is that he thinks that everything should be utilized around a blacklist. So or, or sorry, yeah, utilize blacklists and blacklists as opposed to whitelists where you need explicit permission to transact. So with a whitelist, it would say, okay, I have a protocol to be able to use that. You have to be pre-approved. So by default, you can't use that project. He's basically saying instead of that, you should just have blacklists where at first everybody can go in, they can interact with these protocols, do transactions, but then you would have like essentially a blacklist is like an OFAC list. Um, one of the next things is, which had a lot of controversy, is registering front ends potentially as more of like a broker dealer where they are doing the KYC. So the smart contract code and everything in the background is still uh, permissionless, but you're going to have these front ends, which I think this gets talked about a lot. We've talked about this before, Santi, on the podcast. A lot of people think that DeFi, permission DeFi is going to be a big deal. Now, I think it's fair to point out that you can have a front end that is decentralized and there's projects that are working on that. So it doesn't mean that those don't exist. Um, but I think to be able to grow in the United States and be accepted and have regulatory compliance, I think SBF is just trying to say like, look, these front ends are going to have to do KYC. Now, I don't really know how that works with something like Uniswap, et cetera. And I, I might, I'd love to hear your, actually, you know what? I'd just love to hear your feedback on that. What do you think about that? Um, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, there, I think during the tornado cash in, um, situation, we learned it is possible for front ends to actually take action and either do KYC. Well, they're not doing KYC now, but they are blocking certain IP addresses or blocking certain wallets if they're in this like sanctioned list. Um, and I think, uh, look, I'm not a lawyer, but 
every lawyer that I've talked to, I think kind of believes that look, the, the smart contract, all of that is permissionless, it's decentralized. The front ends are the ones that need to be regulated. Um, and, and I think, uh, the question is, do you need to do that? Or do you just really need to police the on-ramps like the Coinbase's FTX of the world? Because, you know, once you, they should be doing KYC AML. And then once, if you're doing that correctly, then everything that happens in DeFi in theory has been KYC AML. And then you can use tools like chain analysis and a few others to like determine if there's some sort of try try to do some obfuscation of that or not in compliance but um i'm not sure i guess like it is possible to do kyc ml as a front end um whoever's hosting that can do that uh like if you want to sign a transaction then perhaps you need there's like a flow that you can embed there in order to sign in the same way that you go to OpenSea, right and you need to sign and attest to certain things right that you're like the owner of the wallet or whatever then i guess you can you can have like a proof that is generated. And I think there was like a few, I remember seeing there's a few companies that are trying to do like an NFT that has been, that represents your up-to-date KYC, ML, accreditation, status, whatever. Um, and I think that's, uh, it, it was funded by Varian. I forget the name, but anyways, uh, something like that. Like if you have that set NFT in your wallet, then that allows you to access all these front ends. And that's, I think the way you practically like implement yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, I, I saw one of the points on here that stuck out to me because over the last few weeks, we've had a lot of hacks, right? And that's probably bringing regulation and um, even more into the spotlight. But uh, SBF had this line where it's talking about on-chain list of hackers who violate a 5-5 norm, as he calls it, which limits the payout from hacks to the lesser of 5% of the hacked amount or 5 million. And it just, it was a little bit funny to me because I don't know what other industry you talk about, like creating a norm for hackers. <laughs> um, I'm sure like I know whitelist hackers and that whole industry is huge. But I did think that's interesting that we've started this, but it's also interesting the fact that we've already kind of seen this play out. It's like the hackers keep a time a 10% um, you know, prize and then they give the rest back to the protocol. Uh, mm -hmm. I did think that it's called out specifically here. And I I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on that, but also it, it does lead into like insurance a little bit to some degree as well. Cause I feel like if this is gonna be approved and we wanna have um, consumer protections, et cetera, I feel like insurance will be a bigger and bigger thing, which is already talked about, already worked on, but you just don't see it. I, I don't actually use insurance at all. I think you've probably mentioned you have Santi. Is that right? You've used insurance? I've used Nexus. Um, okay. Yeah, but it's it's very bare bones. It's not comprehensive enough. It's not at the wallet level either. It's at the protocol level. Gotcha. And you care if you're, you want to insure your entire wallet, right? And yep. so it's obviously very uh, complex to do that. So there hasn't been really a very comprehensive solution around that. Um, mm -mm. Yeah. Hacks, like there's Immunify, which is pretty interesting, but I guess it puts in a question we'll talk about in, in, in the news, but most recently the Mango hack, uh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> if it passed, I think it passed, right? He is yeah. taking 40, close to 50% of all the funds that were, uh, ex you know, he doesn't like to use the word exploited. Exploited, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever. Anyways, exploited, which, uh, yeah, is a lot. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Fair enough. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see that play out. That's, uh, mm -hmm. and it, yeah, the whole debate, whether that's an exploit or whether that's, say, is a hack is an interesting one. And, you know, I was thinking about this later. And so I just want to get this thought out. And this really goes back to Aptos. And now talking about this, and we're doing all these tests with regulation and hackers. And uh, one thing about crypto that I think will stick around no matter where the industry goes is just the amount of learnings that people are taking away. And by that, I mean, I think the younger generation is just more financial literate 
but because of crypto and I know I am, I took finance in college and afterwards, but I didn't really care about it or find it that exciting until I got into this space and you start learning about token economics. You even learn about how to build a protocol and business development and you start caring about like um, the basics of ROI and et cetera. And I think that's going to be really huge and a big takeaway. I think crypto is going to stick around, but I think it's even more important. And I think this is something that really could be promoted in schools and even at the regulatory level is that this is really making people financial literate because people are excited about learning about finance and crypto for the first time. And I, I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good news on SBF. Um, we're, we're glad we covered that. It'll be interesting to yeah. see how that plays out. And, um, you know, he's a really influential person in the space. So he has a lot to say, but, it, you know, everything's not going to fall back on him. So, yeah, I think uh, the last point I'll, I'll mention here is um, my intuition is that SBF is perhaps the closest, most active when it comes to interacting with regulators. Um, maybe second or or close to with like folks like Coinbase. I felt like regulators continuously go to exchanges first for guidance and uh, to talk about these things. And so um, the fact that he's being more vocal as of late, I think is indicative of, um, which for anyone interested should go listen to the podcast with Rebecca and Jake. And Jake mentions this, like it's, uh, it feels like there is going to be greater clarity and um, in the next three to six months, um, which I just think is positive. Whatever that is, it's still positive because it's better to know what the rules are, or at least the proposals are, than to be kind of operating in the dark. And so, especially around this security, you know, um, question. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm actually a bit surprised that, um, he was so forward in saying that it's going to be their legal team that does the analysis to determine the Howey test, um, and, and like pull from relevant cases and guidance. Uh, and then what that actually means for existing tokens that they've already listed. And if they're going to do that retroactively or for new listings, it's kind of a little bit of a TBD. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how they follow kind of their own policy, internal policies to navigate yeah. the regulatory landscape. I remember Jake, he, like you just said, he pointed <clears throat> out that he thinks by the end of 2022, we're going to have some. Mm -hmm very material proposals come out that might essentially seem bearish at the beginning. Um, and many of those that are, I think, overly bearish will be fought mm -hmm. against. Luckily in yep. crypto, we do have a lot of people working on the policy side. But like you said, a lot of that's going to bring clarity to the space. And mm -hmm. just to make like a real world comparison of needing clarity is like in our business, we're talking about over the last few months, you don't know what's going in the market. It's know hits the peak in November, then it you know bottoms out and then it comes up a little bit. And it's really hard to one just to budget, to operate in that type of environment. But now that we've kind of settled in here, we know where the market is. Um, we have these signs of what's to come. It's a lot easier as a company to like plan what you want to do with marketing, with sales and expanding. And, and I think that's very similar to here, like these new projects that especially talent or businesses that want to get into crypto, they need clarity. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I'll just say a couple things. One, Eric Peters in the episode said, the reason why they haven't touched DeFi and other applications beyond Bitcoin, Ethereum or tokens is because they have, they perceive this risk to be kind of, intolerable for them at least yep. so you have clarity then it opens up how many other players like that want to invo get involved but haven't for that reason so that's a positive um the second one is you know people say oh the minute you you talk about it being a security it places an uh a lot of burden on the token issuer to then have you know to register to do all these things yes it is expensive but you gotta consider a lot in my estimation at least like a 10 to 20% of all funds raised in this asset class in crypto 
are going towards in some way, shape or form trying to navigate the regulatory landscape via lawyer fees, consultants, and a bunch of others. And the reality is you end up in a place where you don't even have clarity. So I think the point that I just highlighted here in this document that I totally agree with the SBF and I'll read it is ideally we'll end up in a place as an industry where being a security is not a bad thing, uh, where there are clear processes for registering digital asset securities, which protect consumers while allowing for innovation. I do think that that is the case at this point. Uncertainty has a cost that we don't talk about a lot, but it is high. And in all the projects that I've invested in, it is at least 10 to 20% of all funds raised initially go towards trying to get some clarity here. And the time and resources and, and just the anxiety and the fear that is, it's not very conducive to innovation. So uh, at this point, <laughs> if it is a security, <laughs> then give us the frameworks. And I think the SEC, if I'm reading kind of between the lines, they created a transparency kind of department for token issuers for them to submit information. I don't think it's transparency or information department. And I think that to me feels like this is where it's going. And if you're a mm -hmm. token issuer, you're just going to have to submit certain standard documentation. And, and I think that's, that's good for market integrity and consumer protection. Yeah, I think that's great. I guess my last comment on that, I was talking to Mike, uh, the other co-founder of Blockworks today and you know, whether something is security or not, what's the purpose of DAOs, et cetera, there's all these questions. And, and part of it is, is the innovation in the space. And people, you know, are a little bit worried about regulation coming in and really just bringing us back to where we are today. But I think what's cool about crypto is that it has almost taken the, not the polar opposite, but um, from what traditional businesses are, we go with DAOs. And it's like, what is DAOs? It's decentralized. Like, what is a security? Well, we have this new thing that's like equity and debt combined. And we're not even exactly sure, like, is it security, is it not? But I think the point is, as regulation comes in, yes, like we're on a spectrum, it might bring us a little bit closer to where we are today. But hopefully, like the efficiencies and also the innovations, et cetera, of crypto and the transparency, like really come out and that proves the product. So I'm excited about that. Absolutely. Cool. Let's uh, let's jump to um, what Hayden Adams of Uniswap pointed out. So Binance recently delegated 13.2 million uni tokens to one wallet. So these are uni tokens that are with the exchange, uh, with Binance, that they're using to then vote on different protocols. So Binance is now the second largest delegate behind A16Z with 5.9% of the voting power. Um, and you know, Uniswap is a major player in the ecosystem. They're probably like the number one blue chip at the moment, and they do more than 60% of daily DEX volumes. So one of the questions that appears here, and this is what Hayden was pointing out, he's like, look, it's great that we have more governance participation, but should these token voting rights belong to Binance or the users who own the tokens? And Santi, I'm just going to leave you with that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... CZ said that it, it was it was uh, not intentional, but it is a risk, right? Uh, it's also, um, yeah, I don't have more to add here other than, you know, obviously there are other exchanges that have a huge concentration of tokens. Um, and so if you combine that pow voting power with the complacency of a lot of smaller players or just funds in the space that are not voting, that's kind of the things that you need to be focused on, which is, hey, maybe, you know, 5% of delegation doesn't seem like a lot, but if you look at the participation and the governance parameters, a lot of times all you need is like two, three or 5% of all the votes being casted for something to pass. And so 5% ends up being a big deal. A lot. And so these are the things that uh, you got to think about. So yeah, it's, um, it's fairly controversial. I've said this, I think we're entering a time where I think we'll start going to see more governance attacks and more uh, mm. more contentious kind of governance 
um, issues. And uh, I think it's important to pay attention to the space. If you're a team out there, really think critically of how can governance be exploited? And I think that should always be the operating assumption. Um, and I think the maker team has done a lot of thought into that. So has the Ave team, the ability to borrow tokens. If you're, if, if say for instance, <clears throat> a lot of uni is in, uh, in compound or Ave for, for, you know, an attacker might be able to borrow a lot of that and then have in, you know, a high degree of voting power. And so anyways, these are things that just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't. And I think in crypto, you ought to assume that it, if it can happen, it will happen. It's just a matter of time. And if the if the economic uh, payout is there, and I think you're already starting to see these governance attacks, um, like Mango, for instance, um, was pretty interesting. Yeah, this governance attacks going to be extremely interesting. It's it's something that popped up to me when I was looking at Aptos, and they talk about in their economics document how the fees and I think also some of the rewards are going they can be voted on and changed through on chain voting. And I don't right. know if that's implemented today, if it will be in the future. And and that's something that Polkadot really like focused on was that the fact that they'd have on chain voting. And at some at some point, you could say like, okay, you have this new code repository. Everyone agrees they vote on chain, and it's say automatically implemented. Um, that would be one example. But mm-hmm. it, it does bring questions of just, you know, if it's an L1 versus an application versus a lending product, like how should that work? Do you always want, for example, Ethereum, it does not have on-chain voting. It's all done off-chain, which you could say probably is less clear and less transparent, but you mm-hmm. maybe are less vulnerable to attacks. So yeah. anyways, I think that'll be something interesting to watch going forward. And I think the other thing that stands out to me for this, which uh, Dan Smith, one of our analysts pointed out is, you know, Maybe eventually these centralized exchanges, they build some type of portal that makes it really easy to do this voting or at least to delegate because we all know there's a lot of voter apathy. Like I absolutely love Apple products, but I do not want to vote on any decisions that they make. Um, But I do think you should have a choice. So I think that's something to watch out for. The other thing that I think we're perhaps a, a thread going forward as we get more clarity on these securities things is governance tokens. And I think governance tokens have been a design that perhaps has come out of this uncertainty on the regulatory standpoint, because you don't want to intimate that a token has any other function. It's just kind of like a valueless token, but you can have governance powers that, by the way, confer some economic value, right? If you look at traditional markets, proxy voting is a huge industry. Your vote has power and has value, but nonetheless, you know, there's, there's, I think we've been in this governance token era in largely because of like or in large part because of regula- regulation but say that in a in a world where you have this clarity on the regulatory side then i think can we perhaps experiment with less governance um and i think it was hasu or some other folks that fall into this camp which have advocated for like tr- like governance minimized protocols and tokens or just protocols and, and and the tokens shouldn't necessarily have a lot of governance power um and that really it should be the team that kind of steer to your point like you're not like you don't have sway over how the you know iphone the next iphone is going to be manufactured it's going to be manufactured with foxcom or in india like no right you have choice which you mentioned earlier which i think is a, a key hallmark of crypto which is there's all there is greater consumer choice of moving chains protocols if you don't agree with a particular decision from a team then you are free to go elsewhere in a click of a button um and so 
I, I think that perhaps <clears throat> this whole, how we think about governance and the role of the community in governance, I think is going to be perhaps rethought in a very interesting way once we have some clarity. And, um, and it puts into question the role of governance tokens and just tokens. To be clear, I believe that there is always going to be some criteria that the community and, and everyone, a stakeholder in the system has, and they should be able to express that via some sort of voting scheme, right? And I think tokens really map out, you know, while map out like participation and interest and stake in a particular protocol. And that that relationship between a token holder and their ability to influence decisions, I think is is powerful. And I think we'll will always exist. It's just a matter of really kind of thinking about the, it's really the degree and the scope uh, of that, that I'm kind of putting into question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those are great points. I think Hasu has a line, probably botching it a bit. So sorry, Hasu, that it's DAOs and, and voters and users should have basically a say on processes. So how a process is set, but not on the actual decisions themselves. So one scalable, one's not. So you're going to have constant decisions. And that's not something you can constantly get votes for. But the process of how that decision gets made, like what are the three steps it has to go through so you have checks and balances, that is that something that's scalable. So I really that, like that line. And I really liked, again, your point on switching costs. And one of the big points of crypto is you're supposed to have really low switching costs, which I'm a huge college football fan. So yeah. this made me think I'm from Arkansas. Uh, go, go picks. But this <laughs> reminded me of the top quarterbacks in college football, because when you go to a team and say they recruit another player below you, you don't have a choice. You used to not have a choice to go to another school. Um, and it's a big issue. And now these quarterbacks, I think any player can switch schools one time. And you're actually seeing a lot of other schools do better because of this, because no longer do you have five starting NFL quarterbacks on the Alabama roster. They can actually mm -hmm. make a change. And, and I think switching costs is um, going to be huge in crypto. And it's really huge in every industry for not just innovation, um, but to have a good user experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think one more thing I want to touch on is Celestia and data availability, if you've heard that term. I'll try to make this not boring, but I'm going to have to nerd out for a second. So Celestia just came out yesterday with, I believe it was a $55 million fundraise, which during a bear market, I think is pretty impressive. And I think you're going to hear a lot more about Celestia. You've probably already heard about modular versus monolithic blockchains. And as an example of monolithic would be something like the Ethereum L1 today or something like Solana. So if you break down what a blockchain does, um, it does about three things. It does consensus, which is the ordering of transactions. It does execution, so it's actually the processing of those transactions. Settlement, which is more or less dispute resolution and also good for bridging. And then you have data availability. So this is the information related to those transactions. So with monolithic chains, it's like one chain does all four of those. Then you have modular blockchains, which is a little bit more of plug and play. So you might specialize in execution and somebody that specializes in execution would be a rollup, for example. Um, they still put their data and information on the L1 blockchain. So breaking blockchains like into their atomic units, the specialization, I mean, you see this all the time with teams. Do you want one person that's kind of decent at everything or do you hire a special um, different people for their certain specialization? So what I want to focus on is a little bit of data availability because that is what Celestia does. Uh, at least today, they're a data availability, uh, data layer network. And let me give you a little bit of background. So full nodes have to download all transactions today um, to ensure that a block is both valid and that it's available. 
Um, so that pl places high requirements on nodes. And you often hear about this with like Ethereum. You can only have blocks that are so big because they want to keep it decentralized because the, the higher the requirements, like the stronger computer, the more power you have to have. Um, call data is a big part of this. So this is just the information related to those transactions. And today, like for rollups, for example, the data is the most costly component. So the question is, do rollups fix this data availability problem? And the point is no. So if with optimistic rollups, their security mechanism is fraud proofs, which is like a seven day period that once these transactions are posted to the L1, anybody can come in and say like, hey, this transaction was not valid. But if the data was not made available, which is this data availability piece, you can't actually prove that something's invalid because you don't even know what that something is. So then you often hear people talk about ZK rollups, which you have validity proofs. Now with validity proofs, you can actually know that all those transactions that were in that block were valid because that's the whole point of these zero knowledge proofs. But the problem is if you don't actually have the data that was within that block, it essentially freezes the blockchain because you can't know the state of the accounts. And if you don't know the state of accounts, you can't do, um, for example, sending funds somewhere else. You can't actually move the chain forward. And there's two things that blockchain should really do. It's to make sure that everything's valid and also censorship resistance. And if you can't make a transaction, you really lose that censorship. So I've been learning a bit about this and I asked like, well, do storage providers solve this like Filecoin or Airweave, which we talked about Filecoin Air earlier. And the answer is no. So the storage network like Filecoin, it's once you have data, you know, and you don't want it to disappear, you put it on something like Filecoin. But if the data is not available in the first place, it doesn't matter. And that's that's the whole point of this data availability. So today with solutions like rollups, they just post all their data on Ethereum, but you could have something like Celestio where instead of posting that data on Ethereum L1 itself, you have the choice to post it on something like Celestia. And at the end of the day, this is all about modular blockchains, basically like how scalable can we make this? Can we specialize? Um, and Ethereum does have things on the roadmap to try to address some of these features, but it's not there today. And I just went through all that, but my main point is I think this modular like blockchain paradigm and specialization is going to be a bigger and bigger topic. And that's something we talked about with Aptos as well. And you never know, like you might end up being a roll-up or an app chain and focus on one specific thing. So I'm pretty excited to see that going forward. And our BlockWorks research guys did talk about a new project recently called the Eigen Layer, which I think is a sweet name. It sounds like House of Dragons type name. Santi, do you watch House of Dragons? Uh, I've watched not all of it, but oh, not but, all of it, yeah. man. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't miss an episode. It, it's it's oh. my favorite thing to date. So, um, but nice. Polyinia, for example, who I, who I really respect in the space, extremely smart. Uh, he's talked about um, Eigenlayer is one of the top data availability solutions in the space. So what's really cool about Eigenlayer is that it adds a new utility function to ETH. So essentially what it does is it lets ETH stakers restake their ETH into an Ethereum smart contract to secure other new projects that need security, like middleware, such as oracles or bridges. Because when you have a new oracle system, like I know Chainlink, but there's plenty out there, you have to have security, right? Which means you need um, staking, you need to get the value of your chain high enough that people can't disrupt it or you have collusion. Um, and essentially this allows Ethereum stakers to then restake, which adds a little bit of additional slashing risk. But what it does add is you get yield from these projects. So not only do you get the ETH staking yield, but you're going to get this um, additional revenue on top of that. And the stakers get to pick the project. So you're not just going to pick a project that you think like, look, I, I don't think this has value. There's a lot of risk here. Um, and the big point of this is one is exciting using ETH to basically because you have this new revenue stream, you're potentially growing the value of ETH and the higher ETH goes, the more security there is and the more projects it can potentially support. Um, and this kind of supports the fat ETH thesis, which is something Westy, one of our block research guy, Blockworks research team members talks about. So Santi, I, I have like two questions for you here. One, this all revolves around infrastructure and crypto, like they're using this to provide security to infrastructure. So one, I'm just curious, do you invest in that space? And I assume you're still a believer of the fat 
ETH thesis that it's going to accrue a lot of this monetary value? Um, so I do certainly invest in infrastructure. Um, if I were, to, I was looking back uh, around all my investments, um, I guess in space, and I tend to invest more in infrastructure during like uh, bear markets or downturns because it, it's a time where you it's things are slower and you can reflect on what really what were the things that we need to patch on um, as you stress test the network and you know with NFTs and gaming it became very clear where those gaps were um, and so I invested in in Aptos, invested in Arbitrum, invested in Squirrel, um, and, and a bunch of other kind of infrastructure providers. Um, and so, yeah, definitely. I, I think we're, we're probably second inning of infrastructure development, if at best. I think it's still very early, and we need to build certain parts of the stack. Um, and as Ethereum transitions to, or has transitioned to proof of stake, I think there's a whole set of considerations now that you start thinking about okay, well, what is this state availability? What is, um, you know, how do we look at and monitor the state of the chain and the validators and their uptime and and relayers and all this stuff? And so <clears throat> I think it's a very interesting time to invest in infrastructure. And at least 20, 30% of my investments have been in infrastructure-related projects. Picks and shovels, baby. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan myself, right? If you can yeah. if you can pick the picks and shovels, you don't have to get the right project. I yeah. think I'm a little bit better at that. And that's kind of like the L1 thesis, right? Too, to some degree, it's a little bit of an index, which you could say is their infrastructure. Yeah. By the way, this eigen, is it me or as you were reading this thread, which is great uh, from Westy, it reminded me a lot of the Cosmos episode um, on how they were thinking about shared security um, and, and the relationship between atoms and staked atoms and kind of the the chain thesis, it feels a lot like Eigen is like bringing on that type of functionality uh, to Ethereum. But that was Definitely. just my, yeah. That's what I picked up too. We might we might have to get Westy on sometime to actually um, describe that for us. But yeah, I do think you can see this in different ecosystems. And I think we talked about this in our episode with Cosmos. It's like, yes, Adam and I say Adam, sorry guys, Cosmos and Ethereum started on different sides of the spectrum, but they are now basically learning from each other and more likely to meet semi in the middle with some of their own like specialized and cultures mm -hmm. and communities. Yeah. 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 Okay, so one thing that's been in the news that I'm actually absolutely fascinated with, which I think we talk about probably every other episode recently because it's all over in the news, is just artificial intelligence, AI. So you had GPT-3 with text, mm -hmm. Dolly with photos. Uh, I don't know the names, but there's like full video projects now. You can just type in text and it'll make a video. Then I think we talked about the Steve Jobs and Joe Rogan interview, which is absolutely nuts. So if you haven't heard about this, they essentially put all this data in all Steve Jobs interviews and they put it next to all of Joe Rogan's interviews and then they combine them and they have a real conversation as if it happened today. And it's, it's absolutely nuts. It kind of, it feels like we're not going to be, oh, I'm not a podcaster yet, but it feels like we're not going to have podcasters in the future. But what yeah. I think is really interesting too, is like the intersection with crypto. And um, to me, I, I know this has been a thing for a while, but I, I think we're going to see more and more um, crypto companies that maybe, maybe they don't work out. Maybe they pivot, which is not a bad thing. You see that in VC all the time. They're going to pivot and say, no, we're not, we're not a crypto company. We are an AI company that leverages crypto. And I have to bet that Adam Newman is making his way to the space because he, he knows how to arbitrage these markets. I think it's going to continue to be, one, it's fascinating what's going on. Um, I think this idea of a Turing test is what, you know, for anyone out there that's not familiar, it's it's sort of this, when you ask a series of questions to respondents and, you know, if you can't determine if something is like, if the respondent is human or like, if you can't 
discern between whether human or non-human if it passes that test then that's i think like one of the key hallmarks of like what is like true intelligence i think that's really fascinating that like for instance now there's been ai generated art that has won awards of like the best kind of like just design awards and so there's other projects like in the space like hume for instance that is creating like uh you know music by avatars and it's not human um and so i think that's pretty interesting of like how do we does it matter that a human has created something um, from like a value perspective? Uh, the other perhaps more important thing is you have to think about the integrity of the data and the availability of data, right? Blockchains are data rich and they provide very interesting properties of, of integrity of said data. And the problem is when you try to train certain AI models, for instance, on credit uh, scoring systems, there's been a fair amount of controversy around that because all the historical data has human bias in it. If you look at the loan approval ratings, well, they skew certain demographics, mostly white males. And, and if you use that data set to then train the model, well, guess what? The model is going to just act in a very consistent, similar way as humans, which have a bias, right? Mm. And, and that poses a really interesting question, which is the, the quality and the integrity of the data that you're using to train the model is important. And I think over time, that's really perhaps the most exciting thing about blockchains, which is they're producing in, in increasingly so streams of data that are, you know, pretty interesting to use and then analyze and train certain models. Um, so that's, that's to me, really exciting. Because anytime someone talks about AI, I always say, hey, well, how are you going to get this data? Like for clinical trials, mm. for especially in healthcare, there's like these data silos that are very hard to navigate, right? So I think that, that uh, that's the, the challenge here and the opportunity as it relates to crypto. And that's the link. Um, there's a really good, so I've read a lot on the subject and I, I won't digress further, but I always want to give a book recommendation in every episode. And there's um, Ray Kurzweil, and he has a few books on on the matter. I think he's he's a chief innovation officer. I think at, of Google or at some point was. He talks about the singularity and kind of super intelligence. Um, and the book that I'm talking about here is so he has a singularity is near. That's really good. But the one that I really like is how to design a brain. I think I've actually read the singularity is near. You're making me yeah. feel smart today, Santiago. <laughs> well, there you go. See, <laughs> we should have you on in every episode. Forget Yana, you've been replaced. Uh, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> the The one I'm talking about is how to create a mind, the secret mm. of human thought revealed. And I, the reason why I think I, if you're like new to this space and you want to kind of venture in, I think it's really interesting because studying AI, I think, has allowed us to really ask ourselves, how do you define consciousness? How do you define intelligence? Um, and I think this book is really interesting because it puts that front and center and you always want to approach, I always want to approach things from like the why, like first principles is like, why does this really kind of matter in the same way of like, why do people really spend time like Elon Musk trying to go to Mars or the moon or space exploration when we have so many problems in the real world and here on earth. And the reason is a lot of the innovation that has been applicable to solving real world problems has come out of research at NASA and thinking about space exploration and the sustainability of like the, like the, you know, like uh, shuttles and, and I think a lot of 
it's interesting because um, I think at be- at worst, we're going to end up learning a lot about what human intelligence really is. Um, and at best, we create systems and designs that have like a leap, like a leapfrog improvement to a lot of processes. So I'm glad you brought this subject up because it, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, and even though it's been really hyped, uh, I think it's very real. Um, oh, oh, and the last, I guess the second book, if you're going to read how to create, um, how to create a mind, there's, um, what's this guy's name? He's Chinese. He was like, Lee, I forget his name. Sounds like I, you're pretty deep in the space, Auntie. No, no, no. I actually have a book right behind me, but um, I'm not going to do it now. We'll link it up to the show notes. But he yeah. was like Kai-Fu Lee or something. He was like the chief innovation officer um, and led AI at Apple, I think. And anyways, in China. But anyways, he's now at Stanford. Very smart guy. He just came out with another book. Um, but his first one is fascinating. So link it up in the show notes. Apologies for not. You know, I'm blanking here. Definitely. Definitely. I, I should probably cut it there, but I, I have to add in because I was getting ready for the yes, section yes. about books that we're reading. So oh, I'm reading yeah. a book. I'm reading a book that is not as intellectually stimulating, but it's called it's called Storyworthy, um, and it's this guy who tells stories basically, I think, for for a living. And one of the main points that I got away from this is every night he writes down one story that happened to him throughout the day. So it's like, what is something that happened to you happened to you that day that hasn't happened in the past? And write it down. Just describe it in like three sentences and then put the date. He does that every single day. He calls it his forever homework. And I think the coolest part of it, I just started this, is that it makes you notice the little things that happen to you every day. It's like you become more present to a degree because you're actually looking for that. Like I used to write a little bit before this job and it made me always say like, what's something interesting that happened? I want to pick this up. And you actually start noticing things more. And that I think that's already happened with me here. Now my stories I wrote down, I would never tell because they're not entertaining. But anyways, I think it's a cool practice that like people should you know think about doing because it's definitely been good for me. Yeah, funny you bring. I haven't done long form writing in a while. I guess since I, I did a lot of it in the last bear market, um, and maybe I should start writing now that we're in a bear. <laughs> but I definitely agree with you, um, and I've tweeted about this a lot, which is I feel that we've gone into like very high frequency, like informal means of communication, and like everyone always wants to. It's easy to suggest having a call um, or texting, but sometimes like it's really nice and refreshing to like just write and whether you're going to publish or not i like publishing because it it's like a reminder i'm publicly staking something and i can look back on it uh, and that really kind of helped me f- think about investing frameworks I, I mostly was writing about like mistakes that i've done in investing which are a ton but that helped me learn a lot about like just like sitting down and, and organizing my thoughts i think is super helpful like writing is is some is a skill that is very valuable to organize and crystallize your thinking. Uh, but anyways, this is the book. <laughs> oh, very Kai, cool. It's Kai Fu Lee, AI twenty forty one. It's a big book. Um, yeah, it's 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 good. But the best the book that I'm referring to is actually this. It, it's called AI Superpowers, and that was his first book, um, and it's fascinating. So yeah, everyone, this would be the second book that I well. Kai-Fu Lee is the guy that I would follow and look at his videos because if you want to learn more about AI, he's one of the, I think the, the more like the just geniuses out there. Very cool. Thanks for, thanks for that. Well, Santi, I had a great time doing this today. Thanks for letting me come on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no, next I mean, week. I like we talk about AI replacing robots, replacing humans, but I think that's pretty far out. Garrett, I think you're going to replace either me or, or Jason. <laughs> 
but nonetheless, it's been a pleasure. I think you should come on on the episode um, uh, more often because I've really enjoyed this and, and you're the brains behind this operation. So thanks for coming on. Definitely. Well, unless I get kicked out, I think I'm taking over next week too. So everybody get excited. Nice. Um, I'm excited for it myself. So anyways, enjoy it. We'll see everybody next week. Yep. Thanks everyone. Have a good one. Yep. Bye.